Number 270 was selected as a song of encouragement this morning. And certainly we're delighted to make that mark. And Jeff has asked us to do that. And we'll use that a bit later in the service this morning. It is a delight that we've each been blessed with and given today to assemble and to gather. And we trust that our time together will be first and foremost a glorification to the God of heaven. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That refrain of Ephesians 3 verse 21. As I stand before you this morning, as always, and as was mentioned previously, we're blessed with a good number of our membership at Pippin, others who have been sick and are able to be back with us, and certainly those who are not with us that we continue to think about being on our list as well. Whatsoever things. As you noted in the bulletin, that is the title of the lesson this morning, focused and drawn from the fourth verse of Philippians, or rather the eighth verse of Philippians chapter 4. By way of introduction, perhaps some of these thoughts are certainly fair for us to consider. When Paul penned that letter in 2 Corinthians, and he arrived at chapter number 3, it was already a discussion touching the nature of human weakness and human frailty and the greatness and the perfectness and the provision of God. It was in that light that we find in verse, chapter 3 verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Paul knew that all the things that he wished to conclude and all the things he wished to accomplish were grounded firmly in the all-sufficient God of heaven. May you and I recognize that day by day our thoughts ought to be the same and not rely upon our abilities, and not rely upon what particular characteristics we may enjoy, but always appreciative that our sufficiency, if it's to be right, and if it's to be satisfactory, it must rest in God. That sufficiently thought of sufficiency leads us to the lesson this morning that I've tried to highlight by way of the latter parts on that slide. The explicit phrase, whatsoever things, occurs seven times in the King James Version of the Bible. Seven times from the opening chapter in Genesis to the closing chapter in the Revelation. Seven times throughout the fullness and extent of the Word of God, and six of those occurrences are found in one verse. The verse that was read in our hearing just a minute ago. Philippians chapter 4, verse number 8. It is for that reason I would invite us to consider today whatsoever things. Looking at the nature of what things Paul has listed and the character of the meaning of them and seeking to discern from them lessons that can be so beneficial and so useful in our daily walk with Christ. Whatsoever things. You did notice that is one of the matters set forth in that verse. This issue of whatsoever things leads us to the following observation. It touches upon something so very needful and so very important to each and every one of us. Let's build on those thoughts like this. Every single word that you speak, every single word that I speak over the course of a day, every single action that's completed, or every single thing that has failed in some means, all have their origin, their synthesis, their beginning as it relates to a thought or a lack thereof. You'll notice at the top of that slide, our thoughts then are extraordinarily significant. They will determine the words that we afterwards shall speak or the words we shall fail to speak. 
They will determine the actions that you and I will then undertake and the things accomplished later that day or perhaps in days afterward. Our thoughts are very significant, aren't they? Is it any wonder then the Word of God touches upon the importance of what we think about, where we allow our mind to dwell, and thus I would invite us for the remainder of the lesson this morning to think about what has Paul revealed to us here? And what is it that you and I might say about whatsoever things? What should you and I be thinking about day by day? This first segment of the lesson then is entitled, as you can see at the top, One's Thinking. Isn't it amazing that from an early age, a youngster, a little child, as he or she begins to grow, they're so active, they're so energetic, they're often so enthusiastic, and they let us know when things aren't well, and they often let us know when things are. But they soon learn the power of thought, and they learn that they can accomplish things by what they think about, and they learn that those thoughts then develop into plans and activities. What do you and I think about as we are now a bit older? Do we think about things as wholesome and as good, or do we allow our mind to drift too often and spend far too much of our day wasted and encumbered with things that are more or less useless? Whatsoever things. Didn't Solomon start our discussion back in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23? Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. I would invite you to notice the language that Solomon used. Keep thy heart, he taught. That word keep comes from an original word that actually has relationship to that which is imprisoned. That which is under careful and close scrutiny and guard. Solomon wrote, imprison your heart, meaning you carefully guard what you allow it to come in contact with. You carefully and powerfully guard what it is that it has influence by. Maybe you and I live in an age and in a time when that's challenging and difficult, but it doesn't escape the thought of what Solomon taught. You'll notice that one other thing about that verse is, he said, with all diligence. This is a serious issue, isn't it? What you and what I choose to think about day by day is a very important matter. Is it any wonder that Jesus in Matthew 13 explicitly taught on that occasion that men can have evil thoughts and those emanate into other activities, be they murders, be they fornications, be they even things in which others are hurt and harmed? No wonder our thoughts then are so vital. And so again, the question, what should you and I be thinking about day by day and moment by moment? Later in that same book in Proverbs, Proverbs 23 verse 7 the inspired writer pointed out, as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. It goes without saying that if you and I speak foul language, it all began with a thought. If we engage in some activity in which we physically accomplish something with our hands, but it's not proper and right, that began with a thought. The thoughts then that you and I think are the subject of our discussion this morning, and as you noticed again in the verse... Let me invite you to read it. Philippians 4 verse 8. What should you, Randy Bybee, be thinking about? And put your name in that sentence as well. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue 
And if there be any praise, think on these things. You'll notice that near the end of that verse it says, If there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. The subject of this verse is what should we be thinking about. That's why I selected it as the lesson text. What should you and I be dwelling on mentally, intellectually, and of course significantly during the course of our lives? As we develop these thoughts, you'll notice he said, if there's any virtue, if there's any moral excellence in you and in me, we'll think on these things. And then he said, if there's any praise, this is what is praiseworthy. This is what God has commended. Let's begin then our discussion by revisiting from the first part of that verse onward. And the first element in the list is, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true. That word true comes from an original word, aliphase. That word aliphase literally means, as you can tell, that which agrees with facts. That which is, again, as you can tell, both real and genuine. Paul wrote and said, the first thing that should form a bedrock of our consideration of what we think about is in fact those things that are true. Obviously, there are many things both in that day and in ours that are not true. They are explicitly false in some cases. That is to say, human beings are powerfully able to deceive. And there are those who purposefully do so. They'll say what they know is not true. They will in fact encourage understanding on the part of others that they know is not true. And so often, of course, we are awash in that kind of thing. We find it in literature that can be read in newspapers sometimes, certainly in various articles and internet sites, but it's pure falsehood. On the other hand, there are those that simply present what is speculative. They don't know that it's true. It could be, but it might well not be either. Either way, might you and I appreciate here, Paul used a word that doesn't relate to either of those things. He wrote of that which is true. The Holy Word of God presents to us the fact that truth begins and in many ways ends with God. It is He who is the fountain of all that's true. Are we not reminded of that on a number of occasions in the Word of God? I've listed some of the verses for you. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar in the words of Romans 3 verse 4. Didn't Jesus say in John 7 beginning in verse number 51, or rather verse number 18, the characteristic there that He made reference to what's true emanating from the wonderful portals of heaven. Truth. We can be so thankful, of course, that there are those who still love the truth. And we are assembled with them this morning. Those who in fact are so seriously concerned with it that they would give their lives in deference to it. They love the truth. Jesus did say, didn't He? As He spoke so wonderfully in John 17, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy word is truth. That was an answer to a question that Pilate had raised. You might recall that in his analysis and in his interrogation of Jesus, on one occasion he asked, What is truth? Jesus, in answer, of course, was quick to remind him that that truth was the presentation of the great God of heaven. And earlier he had told his disciples the same thing. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That attribute and essence of truth reminds us that 
one of the things then we certainly can strive to do is to devote periods of appreciation each day, especially and explicitly, to the things of God. Not allowing time to pass its way so frivolously away each day without devoting some of it, perhaps a fair amount of it, to a reflection and an understanding of the truth that God has set forth. That truth perhaps leads us to note this. We are reminded, each of us, and it will serve as a lifelong mission and endeavor for all of us. Have the mind in Christ. Paul, as he wrote this Philippian letter, two chapters earlier is where that particular passage is found. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. Day by day, you and I are encouraged then to think what Christ thought. To allow our mind to dwell upon what He dwelt upon. To have the mind of Christ. That's a mind centered on what's true. And a mind centered, of course, on what is of God the things we're about to study next. But that truth is only the first thing in the list. You'll notice that beyond that we have some other appreciations as well. Honest. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest. That word honest would perhaps have been more noteworthy as rendered as I have tried to indicate here. That initial literal Greek word means that which is honorable, that which is venerable, that which is dignified, and that which is serious. In other words, this has remark to and regard to truly what is upstanding, what truly has a noteworthy character of being dignified and honorable. It has an essence of grace surrounding it. That initial word was the word simnos, and again, that's the meaning of what all these things are. In contrast, isn't it true that there are so many things in existence and in about us with which we're faced that are disgraceful, they're ugly, they have an element of unwholesomeness to them? Again, this word is very different from that. Honorable. Too often do you and I allow our mind to drip through the gutter of life. We dwell on things that quite frankly are not wholesome. We think too much about pictures and magazine articles and other things that present truly what is not good. Paul wrote, Brethren, if there's any virtue in praise, think on these things. It's a strong element and a challenge at that then for you and me to strive to think on what's honest, that is to say what's honorable. Let's develop that thought a little bit more carefully. In Titus chapter 2, you'll notice verse number 2, we find that this particular word is translated excellent. In other words, there are other verses in the New Testament in which this same word simnos is translated as excellent. And we each know what excellent means. It means the best. It means to strive for not only what's just satisfactory or what's just enough to get by, but it is a literal striving for what ultimately is the ideal. We want our children to be excellent in school, in athletics, or in the other activities in which they pursue, and we want the same for ourselves. What about our thinking? Do we want it to be excellent too? We should. And we should strive for that excellency then moment by moment to mature in us day by day. 
in such a way that the language of Jeremiah 4 verse 14 might well be appropriate. There in the ancient era we find a similar thought presented like this, wash your heart. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? We think about washing a bowl, washing a plate, washing a pot, but God through Jeremiah said, wash your heart. And that was the way by which honorableness would come. Today, you and I need washed hearts as well. A heart that's been cleansed from the filth and degradation of the world. A heart that doesn't focus and doesn't pursue those things. But a heart that recognizes that there's a far higher calling than that. No wonder in Ephesians 4, Paul could write about the greatness of the vocation to which you and I have been called. And it is the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. To quote Philippians 3 verse 14. That nature of honorableness then leads us to the next one. Think on what's true. Think on what's honorable. The next element in the list is whatsoever things are just. Some thoughts perhaps about that thought as well. The word just comes from an original word that's dikehos. And it means that which is right, that which is righteous, that which is just that which is in accordance to divine law. You'll notice again, we're being admonished, as were those of Paul's day, to dwell upon and to think upon what is in accordance to the revealed will of the God of heaven and what's right in His sight. It's often, of course, interesting to think about it, as you, at least as you were aware of it. We live in an age when ungodliness seems to abound. And one doesn't have to labor to be faced with that. We know it. We understand it well. But might you and I be appreciative of the fact that we nonetheless are admonished to think upon what's just. Meaning again, what's in accordance to divine law and thus what is not dwelled upon and what is not a pursuant to all of that ungodliness. We know we must face it. There are times that we ourselves, someone comes to your office at work and reveals to you something that quite frankly is not only unpleasant, it's tragic. And it's sad and it all comes from the sinful choices that somebody has made. We know we have to face it. But may we not be such that we allow our day to be consumed dwelling on it. May we allow our day to be spent at least in part reflective on the marvelous wonder of those divine things God has set forth. Doesn't it bring an element of brightness to the day? Have you ever found yourself perhaps feeling a bit low because of some news you have learned? Someone that you trusted greatly has chosen something so foolish and so ungodly. And maybe your heart is virtually broken. Maybe after a little while, a reflection on some Bible passages... Some reflections on goodnesses that you've known from the hand of God brighten your spirit and bring a smile to your face. I'm sure we've all been there many times. To think upon what's just perhaps leads us to these thoughts. In Psalm 119, verse number 142, the inspired psalmist said, Thy law is the truth. And as he reflected upon the way in which God's law had impacted his life, he was so brightened and so significantly heartened by that thought. Maybe in light of these things, that which is just will bring a similar thing to you and to me. We know there are some things that are just. They're just right. 
They're just that way because God said so. And they're that way because God has orchestrated it so. As you and I dwell upon them, maybe this verse in 2 Timothy 2.15 comes into our hearing and into our play pretty quickly. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If we're to think upon what's just, and if that justness produces and in fact emanates from His Word, we have to understand His Word and be aware of its teaching. May we ever seek then to implant it into our heart and into our life and to often think about it. It may be in that light we can even consider memorization. Many times we memorize many things in life. Over the course of a career that's touched upon physics and science, I know many things I've been called upon to embed in my mind and thinking, and I'm sure in your walk of life the same is true for you. Even beyond that, we often know songs. Just as soon as the first note on the radio plays, we can almost sing the rest of that song. Oftentimes our teachers in younger years ask us to memorize things, and we can still perhaps recite large portions of them. What about the Word of God? Do we consider it important to learn any of it? Do you strive to memorize some of your favorite Bible verses and favorite passages so that you can quote them to yourself or use them in time of need? 31,102 verses are in this book. 1,189 chapters. How much of them do we know? How much of them can we recite and think about? I'm not suggesting that by the time we pass from this life, we should have all of it memorized. But it does seem clear that God wants us to have a working knowledge of it. A knowledge that allows us to appreciate where some general things are found. Do you and I know those things? Have we thought on what's just? That element of justness perhaps leads us to notice one of the statements the Lord made to the Sadducees in Mark chapter 12. Here again were a group of individuals known for their appreciation of what was supposedly of God. Remember the Sadducees and the Pharisees? The Sadducees were that priestly group out of whom so many servants in the temple had come. They were looked up to as knowledgeable, and yet the Lord had the nerve, maybe I should say the truth, to say this to them in Mark 12, 27. Ye do greatly err, not knowing the power of God nor the Scriptures. They didn't know the Scriptures, you see. That led them amiss because they misunderstood the resurrection. They misunderstood the nature of angels and all kinds of things. And Jesus said the reason why is you don't know this book. You don't know the things of God. May the same fate not befall us. May we, of course, appreciate the need to think upon what's just. But our list, of course, goes on to this. There's also what's pure. Whatsoever things are pure. That's such an interesting word, isn't it? The original word is the word hognos, H-A-G-N-O-S. And that word literally means the following, that which is chaste, that which is innocent, that which is holy, that which is blameless and of moral character, moral purity. We each understand that that word purity does signify so very much. And most individuals realize the nature of the thrust of that word. Sometimes our youngsters 
as they reach that age in life when sexual kind of activities can take place, often they are urged, you remain pure. And we know what that word means. But purity, you see, is something admonished for you and me to think about, isn't it? Purity. We understand that when something's impure, that it's contaminated. When it's impure, it has other things in it that ought not be there. And so it is here, we're admonished to think upon what's pure. Here are some thoughts I would invite you to consider. Purity is such a noble quality, isn't it? Jesus taught it in the Beatitudes, did He not? In Matthew 5 verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you and I then ever expect to enter those pearly and beautiful gates into the sublime place of heaven, purity is going to be demanded. Purity is a necessary and integral part, isn't it? Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Wasn't it true that Paul expressly told Timothy three words in 1 Timothy 5.22, Keep thyself pure. Timothy was living in an age and in a time when as a preacher... He would be very ineffective if his life wasn't pure. His message would be very well unreceived if his life didn't reflect the purity of what it should. May we say that our lives as Christians will not be very effective in reaching others if our life isn't pure. If others see in us what they appreciate that the Bible condemns, they will have little respect for who we are and what we stand for, and certainly little respect for perhaps accompanying us to the place of worship. The nature of purity, as you can see on that slide, takes us to some other passages, and I wished for you to look at one of them with me. It's a somewhat lengthier passage. It is only five verses, but it's the entire 15th Psalm. Psalm chapter 15. As we think about and turn our attention to this 15th Psalm, let me preface it by saying, many times good questions might be asked. Questions like, what does God expect of me? What does God require of me? For me to remain in good standing in His sight, what does He expect? Listen to the answers found in the 15th Psalm. Lord, who shall abide in Thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in Thy holy hill? You'll notice the very first verse in the psalm has posed two questions that are exactly similar to the ones we just mentioned. God, who is pleasing to you? God, who is it that extends the character of receiving favor? Listen to the answer. Verse 2, He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not, he that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. You'll notice one of the opening statements in answer to the questions of verse number 2 was, He that walketh uprightly worketh righteousness, speaketh the truth in his heart, and yet already today we've learned we should think on what's true, we should think on what's honorable, and we should, of course, think on what's just. 
you'll notice those all found their appreciation and their appearance even in Psalm 15. Perhaps one final thought. In 1 John 3 verse 3, we are told that those who love and pursue the things of God will purify themselves in their heart. Today, we're then admonished to be purified people. Those who strive to be pure as God has defined it. The list proceeds on to this. Whatsoever things are lovely. In addition to these earlier ones we've noted, Paul now makes note to think on things that are lovely. The original word is prosphiles, and that word, as you can see, means that which is pleasing, that which is agreeable, that which is acceptable. I found it a bit interesting as I tried to appreciate more thoroughly the meaning of that word, that the word that here appears in the original language does not often appear in the Bible. In fact, as far as I was able to find, the only other occurrence in all of the Word of God is found in Esther chapter 5. The only other time that word appears, and isn't it significant that there it appears in the following characteristic, the description of Esther's clothing. As she was making herself ready to go into the king, remember, it was going to be a case where if I die, I die, she said. But I must at least speak to him on behalf of my people. And she arrayed herself, lovely, to go in to show her best for the king. You and I are admonished to think on what's lovely, to think on what's acceptable, what's agreeable. Let's develop that thought perhaps a little bit more carefully. The question there, as you can see near the bottom, that which is pleasing... And that which is agreeable must meet God's definition. Just because I find it pleasing or acceptable won't do. But rather, has God affirmed by His revelation that this thing, this idea, is in fact a lovely one? I'm sure all of us have noted on so many occasions that so often the world turns its attention to what's not lovely. In fact, it turns its attention to what's sordid, to what's not only ugly, but not only inappropriate, but also, in fact, harmful mentally, emotionally, and certainly spiritually. But yet here we're admonished to turn our attention to what God finds agreeable, what's truly lovely. That's one of the special things, isn't it, about assembling like we are this morning. We can come here and we know that the things of the world that so often cloud the news reports and so often fill the radio reports, we don't have to be as concerned about them at least for a while. Those distractions can be set aside and we can think of what's lovely. No wonder this brightens our day, brightens our week, and allows us to understand that God appreciates what's lovely. And He wishes for you and me to think about that as well. The notion of loveliness seems just the opposite of some of the things like vengeance. Getting even. People carrying their guns into schools and, yea, many other places over the last year or so and taking the lives of those round about them in such a way that we see the hurtfulness and the loss and the harm. But God says to think on what's lovely, where you respect human life for what God made it to be, that it's made in the image and the likeness of God, Genesis 1.26. And one lifts high the character and banner that life here is preparation for hereafter. 
And that's the, that's the way that God has revealed it. That kind of thinking reminds us that this loveliness is embedded in such a rich and profound book. Where else would we find things lovely were it not for the Bible? Men's thoughts are so often, again, misled and deceived. One of the final thoughts on that slide, Romans 12 verse 19 as well as the 18th chapter of Matthew, bring us to realize how special and sweet is the Bible's teaching on forgiveness. If thy brother sin against thee, not once, not twice, but yea, even proverbially till seven times seven, that there is to be a willingness, a heart that's not only earnest, but willing to forgive if he repents. That kind of thing the world often doesn't teach, does it? It admonishes to get even. It admonishes to make things hard for that who's your enemy. But God says to turn the other cheek. And He says to have a willingness to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Matthew 7 verse 12. The golden rule will never be surpassed. That rule highlighted in that passage is one that again the sacred Word of God teaches as it emanated from the lips of our Lord Himself. To think upon these things bring us to the last one. To think upon those things that have a good report. Perhaps briefly you'll appreciate with me that that has relation to what's praiseworthy, what's gracious and commendable, and this one is even more unique. It's the only place that word is found in the entire Bible. Significant, isn't it? That here, when you and I are to think on what's commendable, to think upon what indeed is of good rapport, may we perhaps turn that around. How would you and I like it or think about it if someone else were thinking that of us? Is it then of, of as much good report? Is what you and I think of someone else or think about a circumstance, is that kind of thinking of good report? Or rather, is it degrading of them? Is it harmful to their reputation? Is it in some way removing of the graciousness that one would hope they would experience? Again, would we be happy if they thought that of us? Sometimes the truth does bring us to recognize others don't behave the way that we wish they would. But it does ask us to perhaps think of it like this. We shouldn't behave in a way to where others' honest thoughts of us would be not of good report. The example of Christianity must be too shining. Matthew 5.16 says it like this. As the Lord Himself admonished of each of us, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And it is with that we come here to the close of our lesson this morning. One final thought. Jesus knows all of what you and I are thinking about. It's true, you and I may be able to hide it from other people. Someone else, even a close friend, even a close family member may not know everything that you think about. If it's improper, if it's not of the characteristics we've learned this morning, they might not know. But Jesus does. And there will come a day when you and I will stand before His presence and give an answer for anything, even including improper thoughts, unless they've been forgiven. These things are what you and I have been admonished to think about today. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, 
Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. It may be there's someone in the audience that would have a desire this very day to become a member of the body of Christ and all the impure and all the improper thoughts of your life could be washed away in a moment in the blood of Jesus Christ. If we could help you today in that regard, the Lord Himself commanded that you believe Him to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as the only begotten Son of God and then be baptized for the remission of your sins. If we could be of assistance to you in that sequence of steps of obedience today, we would be delighted to do so. But if you have become a Christian at some point, but throughout the arena of life, the struggles and the pressures and the stresses have caused you to think far too much about things that are not on this list. Why not make a determined conviction today to turn that state of affairs around? If we could pray with you in a public way, we'd be honored to do so for your prayers and strength. If even in a private way, though, you need to go to your Heavenly Father in prayer and sometime in the privacy of your own home and pray for strength to think on these kind of things today, do that. If at this moment we could be of any help to you in a public way, won't you let that be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing?